Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the November 2022 edition of The Compliance Life. This month in November, I visit with Stephen Martin. Stephen is the CCO at Skillsoft. Stephen has worked in a variety of areas in the compliance field, in law firms, the DOJ, and consulting. I know you'll enjoy the month of November on The Compliance Life. This episode, Stephen Martin moves to three very troubled companies, WorldCom, Quest, and Adelphia, on The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with Bridget Abram. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Stephen Martin for as this month's featured guest on the Compliance Life. Today in episode two, we're going to take up the one I'm looking forward to because I've heard part of this story and it's great. It's Stephen's journey through three troubled companies. So first of all, Stephen, welcome back. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. As it's always great to be here with you and looking forward to my troubled company career. So in the uh, trioka of accounting fraud, you work for three companies in the first five years or so of this century that are well known to many people. And it started with WorldCom. So could you tell us how you got to WorldCom and uh, some of the craziness you were personally involved in. Yeah, it's it's always fun to talk about WorldCom, Quest, and Adelphia, my three troubled companies, and so it'll be a fun journey back through it. I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington D.C. was over was working on litigation, had started building out the compliance program there, which was really an interesting one because Bernie Ebers, as we all know, at WorldCom CEO who went to prison when we presented him with the code of conduct, and we did both the domestic and international. Vi- versions. He said to us, why do we need that? We're the most ethical company I know. 
and didn't want to put it in place. And that'll tell you a little bit about that culture, probably. The way I made the move from the U.S. Attorney's Office to WorldCom is it was back in the early 2000s. If you remember all these high-flying tech companies, people were interested in going in-house as lawyers. And the path normally from the U.S. Attorney's Office was to go to a big law firm. And out of the blue, because I wasn't looking to leave, the opportunity to join WorldCom, handling government investigations and kind of normal types of work popped up. And the guy who was the number two in charge of WorldCom's legal group, a guy named Tom O'Neill, was a former federal prosecutor from Baltimore. And somehow I got picked up and I applied for this and ended up getting offered the job. And at the time it was, it looked really interesting. It looked like an amazing move to go from the U.S. Attorney's Office straight in-house to do something for, at the time was one of the biggest high-flying tech companies in the world. I think it was worth a hundred billion dollars. And so I got offered the job and it was really interesting. I, I was sitting across the street from what would be my office at WorldCom having dinner at an Asian restaurant while Tom O'Neill called me to offer me the job. And he called it like eight o'clock at night and he was going on vacation, wanted to offer me the job, wanted to work through all the details. And so I'm sitting there having this conversation with him on the phone, on my cell phone, and I can see him through the window. I didn't tell him that because I didn't want him to think I was some like weird stalker, right, at the time. But it was literally, I was having dinner in the restaurant across the street and he was sitting in his office. So I'm having a conversation, watching him talk to me and offer me the job. And I remember very vividly not negotiating one cent in, in salary and all on stock options, right? Because it was the early 2000s. I was thinking this is a great way to make up for some of the government salary at the end of the day and negotiated for more stock options, not a dollar cent more in terms of salary. And I think I joined at 42 or $44 a share. And I think I left at 15 cents. So that really worked out well for me in terms of my negotiating strategy. But it also started me on my in-house corporate compliance career before compliance officers were really a thing. And I had an amazing experience while WorldCom was running normal. And I had an even more interesting experience as WorldCom collapsed. So what was your part in that collapse? So my part in that collapse was really interesting because I had been working with like internal audit and I'd been working with various groups around the company, just like a compliance officer would and doing various things, internal investigations, litigation support, whatever. And I got a call one day from Cynthia Cooper and you'll know Cynthia Cooper, but for people who don't out there, she was head of internal audit at WorldCom. She became subsequent to this, one of Time's Women of the Year as a whistleblower. And it was a big deal in terms of what she did because she stood up and, and exposed one of the biggest frauds in corporate America history of all time. Certainly that was number one at the moment. Anyway, she called me up and she said, hey, Stephen, I'm at the WorldCom board meeting and I just got done talking to Bernie Ebers, right, the CEO, and there's some potential sales commission fraud issues that have come up. Bernie would like you to work with me to investigate them, involve some top reps and some major people that Bernie knows well. And so he wants you to investigate it. And I said, oh, okay, great. I think this is great for my career. I'm a young lawyer, the CEO of the $100 billion company wants me to investigate something. Like, I'm excited. And then she said, but there's two things. And whenever somebody says, but there's two things, like, it's not going to be good. And she says, first, he wants to run the investigation himself, right? Because he knows these people really well. And so he's going to be, he wants to be involved. And second, you can't tell the general counsel or the chief legal officer, the number two guy who was my boss. And I'm like, Cynthia, I can't do that. I can't not tell them. And she's a Bernie. And Bernie was a notorious hothead, right? And, and, she, and I was like, Cynthia, I literally have to tell them. Like, not only are they my bosses, but it's the legal department. This is a serious issue. There's no way. And she's like, what are you going to do? And I said, 
I don't know. Cause now I went from being ecstatic to thinking I'm going to get fired or this is a really bad day in my career because I'm being told by, to do something by the CEO, very powerful CEO at the moment. And I know what my ethical obligations and responsibility to the corporation are. So I wander in as my next step to my good friend, Tony Alfano, who was head of labor and employment at WorldCom. And I sat down and I said, Tony, I need to talk to you about a serious issue. And as opposed to the MCI fantasy football league, we also had, but I'd sit down to talk to him. And I said, I explained the situation just like I explained it to you. And he's, wow, you are so effed up is what he said. And I was, I was like, and I was like, Tony, that's not the response I want from head of labor and employment. He's, oh, you're toast. What are you going to do? And I'm like, okay, again, that's not the response I wanted. I said, can you just document that we had this conversation? Because I, it might be important to me later. And it, I said, I'm going to go up to talk to the general counsel, Mike Salisbury, who was, who was the general counsel, but he didn't really know the lawyers and he wasn't involved in us on a day-to-day -day basis. And I was going to skip my boss, Tom O'Neill, right? Because I knew this was a very sensitive issue. So I went up to talk to Mike and walked in his office. I'm pretty sure he didn't know who I was and explained the situation to him. And he said, okay, he said, let's call Bernie. And I'm like, that seems like a terrible idea. And he's like, no, we're going to call Bernie. I'll get this handled. You don't tell Tom. We'll just keep it between you and I, which later comes out that I had to follow what he was saying. Tom was never very happy with me about that decision, but I was doing what I was told by the general counsel. And so Mike calls up Bernie Evers. He said, hey, Bernie, I've got Steven in here and I heard about this issue with Cynthia. And he just goes crazy, he starts dropping F-bombs. I told him not to talk. I was going to do it. And so Mike gets him all calmed down. He says, look, it's just going to be Steven and I. We're the only ones that will know about it. He's going to conduct the investigation. I'll oversee it. So he gets Bernie calmed down. I spend the next couple of weeks flying around the country doing this sales commission fraud investigation, right? Double booking of sales, stealing commissions from the company. And it was legitimate. It was probably $50 million. But in hindsight, it wasn't nearly as big as what was actually happening in the company. And so I get back to Washington, D.C. after being on the road for a couple of weeks and all this happening. And I get a call from a Wall Street Journal reporter. And she says to me, she says, hey, I hear you're doing this investigation. We're going to break this story. You're going to be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Do you have any comment? And I'm like, oh, no. I'm like, no, I don't have any comment. I got to get the comms people involved. And, uh, and I thought, again, this is not going to be great for my career here at WorldCom. This is the young lawyer trying to figure everything out. So it turns out it breaks in the Wall Street Journal the next day. In fact, it's hanging in my office here somewhere. I'll have to find it and show it to you. But I had the article and the whole thing that my wife did and just put it into a frame for me because it was the first big time and being named in the Wall Street Journal. What happened then is the next day we got the informal inquiry from the SEC about accounting fraud issues, including some of the sales commission. Within the next day, I'd flown to Mississippi and sat down and interviewed Scott Sullivan, interviewed Troy Norman and Betty, Betty Yates and a couple other people that were ultimately convicted felons. And that's a long story about how they got there, but they basically got used by the CFO and Scott Sullivan, who was capitalizing expense and committing massive accounting fraud, trying to keep up the, the financials and the stock price, given where things were happening in 2002 with the kind of collapse of the economy and the companies. And so they were, Bernie Evers and Scott Sullivan were trying to control everything, prop it up, because what had happened at the company is WorldCom was a fast growing tech company, the internet backbone, but huge expense, right? And lower revenues. MCI, which they had bought a couple of years before that was the old telephone company that had huge re revenues and declining profitability and declining margins and everything. And so that those two intersected and all the debt that was on the company and given where the markets were, it just was causing a lot of pain for the business. 
as it was happening throughout the corporate environment. But what they tried to do was it was just cover up the accounting, cover up the numbers. And it was it started out in one quarter and over four five quarters would turn into billions of dollars of accounting fraud. And then Cynthia Cooper came out and exposed this and was a whistleblower and the company collapsed in one of the biggest collapses in American history. I'm sure we'll circle back to this, but the last thing I did was write a memo with a stack of documents about my interviews with Scott Sullivan and others and left it on my desk and walked out. So it was the biggest corporate failure in American history to that date, but you didn't stop there. So tell us about moving from WorldCom to Adelphia. Yeah, it was so fun. Actually, I didn't go from WorldCom to Adelphia. I went from WorldCom to Quest, right? And if you remember, okay. Quest had the stock option backdating issues and had selling by, it was alleged that there was corporate accounting fraud going on. The company was never charged with that. It never ultimately led anywhere. But the CEO, Joe Naccio, was ultimately convicted of insider trading, right? And he was accelerating stock option plans. A guy had hundreds of millions of dollars in stock options. And he chose with news that he had about a declining revenue in the company and same kind of thing, like the same issues that were happening generally in the industry. He chose to accelerate his selling of the stock to take a bunch of money personally and was convicted. And, and so when we talk about the three companies, all three CEOs of the companies that I've been involved in are in prison and, and the companies no longer exist. So I don't know if that's a good thing, but it was a, it was a pretty wild time. And so I actually came to Quest after the issues had started and after the CEO had resigned and had been convicted. And so I helped then to rebuild the company. I dealt with a lot of the fallout around what was happening with the former CEO, but I came in as the investigative counsel and chief privacy officer and spent a little about a year there helping to deal with kind of the crisis and the issues that were going on before heading to Adelphia, which is a whole nother story. So Adelphia, perhaps the craziest of them all. What was it like at Adelphia? Adelphia was, Adelphia was really interesting because it was a publicly traded company, but it was really controlled by a family, the Regis family. And they were based in Cowdersport, Pennsylvania. It was the dad and then his sons. One of the sons was a CFO. One of the other sons was involved in one of the other businesses. Another son had decided he didn't want to be really involved in the businesses. He wanted to actually be a priest, but his dad and mom forced him into the business, which turned out to not be good because he ended up being a convicted felon, and, but was less involved in, in the shenanigans. It was really the father and the son, Tim Regis, Regis, who was the CFO. And you know what they did is they had a great cable company business, started out in Western Pennsylvania, bought a bunch of cable systems all through the country, built a great business, and then decided they wanted to go public. And so went public, took public money, but with that still treated their company like it was their own personal piggy bank. And so they did lots of things. So they were buying timber forests and they had golf course and they owned all of Cowdersport basically. It was for all intensive purposes, it was a company town. Like it was all Adelphia, all the Regis family, the Regis family, and they, they were the kingmakers in that town. It was really interesting to see. Tim, the CFO, was he fashioned himself a playboy, so he was flying all over in the corporate jet with various women. He was doing all kinds of different things. And they, they were just personally taking money, right, at the end of the day. It's as simple as that and ultimately led to the collapse of the business, even though it was incredibly profitable. And we ultimately, as we worked through the prosecution of the Regis family with the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, 
And we, the company was forced into bankruptcy, but we ultimately sold it for 17 billion. A lot of the creditors actually got hundred percent on the dollar because the company was so valuable and it was throwing off so much cash as a cable system, but it was just mismanaged. And the people that were running it, the family, they were just, again, treating it like their own personal piggy bank. And they didn't appreciate or care that once you're a public company, you have shareholders, you have disclosure requirements, you have things you can't do with the money in accounting. One of them, I think the CEO is getting paid a million dollars a month in just a slush that even though he didn't need the money, that, that's the crazy part of this is the family was super wealthy and they didn't need anything else. They could have done it all legitimately. That's one of the interesting failures or one of the things I've watched about from a personality standpoint through all of these things is why did these people make these decisions? And it's just, there's crazy stories about all the things that happened, but I came in as head of litigation and compliance and had to rebuild a compliance culture, handle all of the investigation and litigation. So it was a crazy time. And then we ultimately, like I said, sold the company for $17 billion. So you went through a major transaction. It was three years of drinking out of a fire hose. I was also doing my MBA at the same time because when I had dealt, when I was at WorldCom, I sat down with Scott Sullivan, who tried to explain why capitalizing expense is legitimate and that he was going to put a white paper together and explain it to the board. And as a prosecutor, I knew what he was saying was bullshit, right? But I also didn't quite understand it. And so I went back to do my MBA and was doing it during the time that Adelphia and all the collapse. And so I'd get out of business school at 10 o'clock at night. You'd work all day. I'd go to business school from six to 10 at night. And then I'd be on calls with our lawyers in, in New York at midnight their time, dealing with issues and dealing with all the problems. And so it was a crazy time. In those situations, you got to love it and want to do it because if you know, it could really stress you out. But for me, it was an incredible learning experience. You can't replicate the things that go on. And now you get to the point in your career where, you know, people start to panic about something and you're like, hey, this could be way worse. Trust me, like this is not that big of an issue. Well, Stephen, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us for episode three, where we take a look at your move into the consulting world. I look forward to continuing this conversation. Sounds great, Tom. Thanks for having me on again. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you will join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.